in the morning. In the morning. I feel so bad in the middle of the day. Yeah. I feel so bad in the evening. In the evening. That's why I'm going to the river to wash my sins away. I'm going Sister to Rosetta Tharp was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and a pioneer of mid-20th century music. She attained popularity in the 1930s and 40s with her gospel recordings characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and rhythmic accompaniment that was a precursor of rock and roll. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences, later being referred to as the original soul sister and the godmother of rock and roll. No, 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 She influenced rock and roll musicians including Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. When Johnny Cash gave his induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he referred to Sister Rosetta Tharp as his favorite singer when he would listen to her on the radio as a child. WHBQ, and they had a program on there called Red Hot and Blue late at night where they played back then what they called race music. And there I heard some of my my earliest heroes. And it was at the home of the blues record shop where I bought my first recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp singing those great gospel songs. Willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness of nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her, Sister Rosetta Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now. It keeps the spirit moving in my soul. Lottie Henry, a member of Tharp's backup vocal group, the Rosettes, remembers Sister Rosetta Tharp's talent. She could play a guitar like nobody else. Nobody. Here's Joe Boyd, American record producer and writer who played a crucial role in the recording careers of Pink Floyd, R.E.M., and 10,000 Maniacs. I think Rosetta was a hugely important figure. Let's you know, She was really unique as a guitar player. She had a big influence on somebody like Chuck Berry, who was one of the most influential guitar players in the world. And here's Gordon Stoker from Elvis Presley's backing band, The Jordanaires. She did incredible picking. That's what really attracted Elvis was uh, her picking. And he liked her singing too, but he liked that picking first <laughs> uh, because it was so different. Don't you know now this train is a clean train? Everybody riding in Jesus' name. And here's Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer. She had a major impact on artists like Elvis Presley. When you see Elvis Presley singing um, early songs in his career, I think if you imagine that he is channeling Rosetta Tharp, it's not an image that I think we're used to thinking about when we think about rock and roll history. We don't think about the black woman behind the young white man. Sister Rosetta Tharp was born on March 20th, 1950 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, not far from the Mississippi River. 
Her parents, Katie Bell and Willis Atkins, were both cotton pickers. Here's biographer Gail Wald and Ira Tucker, friend of Sister Tharp and lead singer with the American gospel group The Dixie Hummingbirds, talking about the influence that Rosetta Tharp's parents had on her as a child. We don't know too much about Rosetta's father. What we do know about the father is that Willis Atkins could sing, and so it's possible that some of her gift of singing came from her father. Her mother um, was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Her mother was incredibly passionate about the church. Rosetta's mother, Miss Katie Bell, was what we called her. She was a very traditional person, and basically she was what, what we called a stomp-down Christian. I mean, that's one that enjoyed stamping her feet and patting her hands and celebrating what she believes in. And the reason that I think that Rosetta really became such a strong woman was because of her mother. Because her mother, again, was the same type of person. She had no fear. She would take her guitar, she would take her tambourine, she would take her chair, and she would sit outside and play for people and try to convert them and to get them to go to church. In 1921, Katie Bell left Rosetta's father to become a traveling evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Taking six-year-old Rosetta, she left Cotton Plant, Arkansas and joined the exodus of poor black Southerners heading north. There was work in Chicago and even something more crucial for the young Rosetta. Migrants brought the blues from the Mississippi Delta and jazz from New Orleans. Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, and Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer, on this important time in Rosetta's life. Rosetta is often seen as a country singer, but that's a fallacy. Her major development occurred very early. She moved to Chicago when she was six. She and Mother Bell joined Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ, and the Chicago Sanctified Church was bubbling with musicians and new songs. And so she was exposed to something that was new. It was not rural, it was an urban kind of religious singing. It was at that church where she first really started performing, um, where she was the main attraction. There's a great story that has her being put when she's six years old on the top of the piano, um, holding a guitar, being put there so that she could be seen by the congregation and playing and singing and charming everyone with her talent and her precociousness. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother of rock and roll who influenced everyone from Elvis Presley to Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry. Brilliant. I wait a 
stick like glue Stick because I'm stuck on you This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Elvis Presley. Some people think he was the king of rock and roll. But Elvis Presley said that the real queen of rock and roll, the godmother of rock and roll, was Sister Rosetta Tharp. And we're listening to her story right now. Jesse's doing a great job, as always, on these music stories. I would urge you, if you get a moment, put in the words Sister Rosetta Tharp and Didn't It Rain on a YouTube search, and you will see something extraordinary. And everything we're talking about you're going to see the way she held that Gibson SG, a white Gibson SG, as she comes off a carriage in Manchester by a train station in a white mink coat, gets in front of a small uh, ensemble. There are a bunch of white British kids waiting for this African-American lady in a white mink coat holding a white Gibson SG, doing the duck walk, all the moves that you'd see from Chuck Berry and Keith Richards. She created so many of them. But let's now return to the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now It keeps the spirit moving in my soul Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp's early performances before her teenage years. There's something within me Not just holding the rain she told me that when she was a girl, not even 10, she was immediately seen as an all-purpose musician. She'd go to a revival and she'd play her guitar. And if the people would get happy afterward and shout, she would drop the guitar and run to the piano and accompany them with her piano chords. And then she might get up and cut a couple of dance steps herself. She was a phenomenal showwoman. On life battlefield. Throughout her teenage years, Sister Rosetta Tharp was taken by her mother from city to city to perform in churches, tabernacles, and revival meetings, winning the hearts of thousands with her demure looks, angelic voice, and unique guitar style. She soon became a nationwide celebrity within the church, and this Philadelphia church is one of the first she performed in back in the 1930s, Church of God in Christ. Here's church parishioner Helen Henderson remembering Sister Rosetta Tharp. When I saw Rosetta, I was, a, I was about maybe 10 years old. Oh, she had, she had the most beautiful voice and the way she could speak to you. It made you feel different. You knew something was going on, even if you didn't understand really what it was. And that's the way it was with me because I was a child. And here's the pastor of that church, Robert Hargrove. Many of the hymns were expression of suffering and wanting to survive, many of them. And when she came and they saw the expression of her, the freedom that she expressed in her singing and dancing, it woke up the congregation. It focused them on something that was on the inside that they never gave expression to. Rosetta would start looking up. She didn't look at anybody. She looked up as if she saw God. And it was as if God was in her and she was communing with Him rather than with a human being. When Rosetta Tharp was 19 years old in 1934, her mother married her off to a preacher, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. For the next four years, she and Tommy worked for the church. Her job was to draw the crowds while he preached from the pulpit. But in spite of her mother's good intentions, the marriage was not working out. 
Here's Rosetta Tharp's best friend, Roxy Moore, remembering her old friend while sitting behind the keys at the piano. Look up! Look up! And see your maker before Gabriel. I met Sister Rosetta in the summer of 1937. She seemed a little bit glad that she was married, but she didn't seem to be very happy. And that's the reason I took to her. Because, you know, I wanted to just make her happy, make her feel as special as she really was. But I didn't have any idea that she and Tommy wouldn't make it. Ira Tucker, longtime friend of Sister Rosetta Tharp and lead singer for the Dixie Hummingbirds, remembers Rosetta's first husband a little differently. He was a tyrant. Um, From what my parents used to say and talk about, uh, he seemed to um, come out of the real, real sub-old school and believed in the kind of almost caveman-like attitude towards women. She was just a meal ticket. She was a performer and he used her to bring people to his churches and he would put her up to sing. And after a few years, she had enough and she said, you know what, I'm gonna leave all of it. And she made that big jump. Rosetta then left her husband and took her mother to New York. In a city full of nightclubs, Rosetta was soon noticed and offered a spot at the prestigious Cotton Club, singing to a white audience. Four, five, five. Four, five, But the song she was given by the men in charge made no mention of God. The lyrics were about pleasing her man. Here again is Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker. It was like a bomb had dropped on gospel music when she flipped. (laughs) It it was like, what? You know, I can't believe she's... That's Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's not supposed to be singing that kind of music. Oh, she was criticized and ostracized. I mean, the church people just, you know, just thought that she had just gone way off. Actually, it was hurtful to a lot of people because they felt as though they had lost something. They had something and it was great, but now it's gone. And they they viewed it almost like a death. You know, Rosetta is, she's gone. She went over. She's in like another world. Having discovered that she loved God and nightclubs, Rosetta decided to sing gospel in church and join the secular world of show business at the same time. The offers began to pour in. She was wanted by all of the big bands of the day, and in October of 1938, she signed a contract with Decca Records. Sister Tharp was also beginning to stir controversy. Here's record producer Anthony Halebutt on what was happening at the time. Her first hit was a song called Rock Me. And the the lyric is, Jesus, hear me praying. She sang, won't you hear me praying? 
So when, when she came to the chorus, when she sang, rock me, and growled, rock, it sounded really, to many people, like uh, an invitation, and not to the altar. And here's biographer Gail Wald talking about this part of Sister Rosetta's life. Recording the song in that particular way marked her as someone who was having the nerve to reinterpret a spiritual song for a secular audience. I think there was also a piece of her that was just rebellious. She does some very risque material with Lucky Millinder, most notably a song called Tall Skinny Papa, which was a big hit for Millinder's band, and she was the lead singer on that. And she sings, I want a tall skinny papa. There's no way of <laughs> misinterpreting I want a tall skinny papa for anything that has to do with um, spirituality. Roxy Moore also remembers that song all too well. The next thing I heard was this recording out a Rosetta with the tall skinny papa. So I said, it can't be Rosetta. So I went and bought the record. And after I listened to it, I said, oh my goodness, sister's out there singing that stuff. So when I, I saw her, I said, sister, I heard you tell Lucky Milliner that you weren't going to sing that stuff. She said, when I saw that contract, he had a clause in there that I had to sing whatever he gave me to sing, she said, and I didn't know it. And I had a seven-year contract with him. She said, and I had to do it. I have a question to ask you. Want you to tell me if you can. I want somebody to tell me just what is the soul of man. Following the controversy with Tall Skinny Papa, Rosetta resolved to stick with the songs she knew best, gospel songs. Her loyal followers back in the church got over the shock and stayed with her while she gained new fans that loved her music. This wasn't easy to pull off, but somehow, she did it. By the age of 25, Sister Rosetta Tharp was rated among the finest popular musicians of the day. In less than five years, she had established herself in a male-dominated industry, singing the songs she chose to sing in her own distinctive way. She was now rich, famous, and officially gospel music's first superstar. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. This is Our American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. In a highly segregated society, black and white musicians performing together back then was considered highly taboo. However, Sister Rosetta Tharp was more than happy to defy convention. All we hear church people say, they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. Gordon Stoker, from a band called the Jordanaires, remembers one such act of defiance. She was more or less a pioneer in asking us to even perform with her. She called us her, her four little white babies. 
And I thought it was so cute that, you know, that she referred to us as that, as, as that way. I thought that was just something I'll never forget. And we just loved to sing with her because when she started snapping her finger, man, and started singing on a tune, you couldn't help but sing. I know the first time we worked with her, they, they booked us. We went to the we went to the stage door, and some man came to the door, and uh, and we, one of us said, "Well, we are we are the Jordanaires," and he said, mm, "You you are the Jordanaires? Well, he said, this is going to be a surprise to our audience." Sister Rosetta didn't tell him that we were white. <laughs> she booked us, but she didn't tell him we were white. And it, it, when we first went out on the stage, they didn't really know how to take us, but then we started singing, working on the building. But then on then we were in. By the age of 30, Rosetta had survived two brief and unhappy marriages. In 1951, Sister Rosetta Tharp invited 25,000 people to her next wedding to her manager, Russell Morrison, followed by a vocal performance at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. This was a massive publicity stunt. They would sell tickets to her fans and the recording rights to Decca Records. Here's biographer Gail Wald. So she records uh, her wedding ceremony and a concert that follows it in 1951. 25,000 people come out and pay admission prices to attend her wedding. They bring wedding gifts for her. They bring crystal. They bring... Um, dishes for her. Someone even buys her a television set. It's a total showbiz move. And at the same time, it's a, it's a wedding ceremony um, conducted by a minister, a real wedding ceremony. Despite criticism from her friends for marrying her own manager, Sister Rosetta Tharp remained married to Russell for the next 22 years. Meanwhile, back in the Mississippi Delta region, young white musicians were just beginning to discover the raw energy and complex rhythms of African-American gospel. George Klein, a friend of Elvis Presley's, describes the scene. There was a hip thing happening in Memphis at that time. There was a little church, and it was cool. It was a cool thing to do on Sunday nights only. You would go there, and there would be Elvis and some of the other guys from the area, and it was unusual because back in those days, white people had to sit in the back, and it was roped off. And we would sit back there, and we would watch these black spiritual singers sing on Sunday night. The thing that gospel spiritual music brought to popular music was feeling. Gospel spiritual music put the guts and the feeling and the real soul into it. And uh, people like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and those guys, Buddy Holly, if you will, they saw that. And they adapted to that, and that really was the essence of rock and roll. Thinking about it, Sister Rosetta Thorpe, she had this great feeling, and that's what Elvis was looking for, feeling, because that's, what was, that's where it all came from. By the early 60s, Sister Rosetta Tharp's influence was continuing to spread as yet another generation fell under her spell. Here's a recording of the one and only Bob Dylan talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp on the radio. Sister Rosetta Tharp was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist. It's a clean train. 
Everybody ride it if you can. You know, she traveled to England with Muddy Waters and a whole bunch of other blues performers in the early 60s. And I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up an electric guitar after getting a look at her. In the summer of 1964, Sister Rosetta Tharp was booked to perform in a British gospel television music special. The musicians were all American, the audience, English students. The venue, an old railway station just outside Manchester, England. Joe Boyd, the tour manager of the 1964 folk, blues, and gospel caravan, remembers that performance. The Manchester gig was a curiosity in the middle of the tour for us. It was kind of bizarre, but you know, we were all new to England and we were aware of all this interest in blues and gospel. We all thought it was strange, the setup with the audience on one platform and the musicians on the other. And she rose to the occasion. She loved the drama of the situation and sort of trying to bridge that gap between the platforms and sell the whole thing across the, the track to the audience. By now, Sister Rosetta Tharp was 49 years old and she had been touring on the road for 40 of those years. But even in cold, wet, windy England, the magic was still there. As she arrived on a horse-drawn carriage, walked to the stage, strapped on a white Gibson SG, and began to sing, Didn't It Rain? Didn't it rain, children? Rain, oh, yes. Didn't it? Yes, didn't it? You know it did, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained. While Rosetta was away in Europe, her mother was becoming increasingly frail. In 1968, Katie Bell died. For 53 years, she had stuck close to her daughter, through good times and bad, and the one constant figure reminding Rosetta of her faith in God. The loss took a heavy, heavy toll on Rosetta. She became increasingly depressed, and to make matters worse, she was diagnosed with diabetes. There is a divine power. I believe it. I don't know about you, but I got to believe it, because I was raised that way. I sing this song. Made in 1970 in Denmark, this is the last known recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp performing. Just Lord, take my hand, lead me on, and let me stand. I'm tired, you know, I work so hard. And I'm weak. My body is warm. Rosetta's friend, Roxy Moore, noticed a black spot on Rosetta's foot one day and told her to have it checked out by a doctor. Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker described what happened next. Through the storm. She wouldn't listen to anybody. So the next thing, foot started turning black. Then she did have to go to the doctor. Then they found out they had to cut a leg off. Just to say. Sometimes she would call me and say, Sister, please come. Please come to see me. And I would say, All right, I'm coming. But the last few months I didn't go because, you know, Russell was acting like he didn't want nobody taking over from him. When I went over to see her and said she was in the bed and she was 
And she, she would say, where's Russell? I'd say, downstairs. And she would say, he's asking you about shows, right? And I'd say, no, he didn't say anything. He said, yes, he is. He, he wants to know if I'm going back. She said, and I'm going back. But I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. But she never did. On October 9th, 1973, the eve of a scheduled recording session, Sister Rosetta Tharp passed away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as a result of a stroke. She was buried in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 2008, some 35 years after Rosetta's death, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that the 11th of January will be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Didn't it and great job as always, Jesse. This is our American stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business and innovation, and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your stories. Send your best stories, your family stories, personal stories, stories about love and loss and life, courage, any subject at all. Funny stories. A good toast, by the way. A great toast at a wedding Love to hear anything or everything you have. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now it's time for our Better Healthcare at Lower Cost series, sponsored by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next edition. We lost my mom 10 years ago. She was really healthy. She was actually working out at the gym at the time when. She dropped a bag uh, from overhead, and it hit her clavicle somewhat lightly, and it clavicle fractured, which was really surprising because clavicles aren't supposed to fracture. And they went in, and they found out that she had a tumor in it, and that she had stage 4 cancer. She had tumors all over her body. We're listening to entrepreneur, investor, and son, Joe Lonsdale. She'd been complaining a little bit about some pain after an operation, and the doctor told her it was, just, it was probably nothing. It's normal to have some pain, but it turns out the pain was a, was a huge tumor in her liver. So it was pretty horrible. I was in my mid-20s at the time, and we all took off some time uh, spent with her. I wish I'd taken off a lot more time because we only, we only had her for three months. We thought we'd have her for maybe a year. But she, she passed away pretty quickly, so it was a really big shock. And I, you know, I was already really close with my family, but it brought us even closer. Anyone who's ever lost a parent, it kind of shifts the nature of the world a little bit. My mom was kind of like the bedrock in the family, so it really, it really fundamentally changes things. I honestly felt really angry at myself for not having done more in the area of cancer and the area of biology before I found out about this. As a young kid, my father coached our chess team, and, and we were the state chess champions, the national chess champions, and that gave us a lot of confidence. And, I think it's probably good for kids' memory, too. I, I always thought I was really good at chess, but my dad still wins the state chess championship. He's coaching the same team you know, for fun 30 years later, so, so it probably wasn't me. It was probably him. It also sounds like this father-son duo from Silicon Valley were some real dorks. 
Well, and this is probably politically incorrect, but the area is about 50% Asian. So, so I think it was a more studious area, right? So it wasn't that unusual to be studying hard. Can't touch this. If anything, when there were bullies at school, my job was to defend my friends from the bullies because I was a little bit of like a bigger athletic kid relative to some of my friends who were doing math and chess with me. And, and I you know, became good friends with, with some of these kids too when, you, when you, they try to bully you and your little boys get in fights and after you have a fight, you become friends. I think that's a natural thing for young boys. And I know these days, maybe that's politically incorrect. But, uh, but you know, it was actually really funny. MC Hammer moved next door to us. You know who MC Hammer is from back then? He was really famous. It was a middle class neighborhood he moved in. He brought a lot of his nieces and nephews who'd come from a not a very good part of town. And some of them began, ended up becoming bullies of my friends. But then when we fought back with the young men, we actually became good friends with them too. So it was an interesting upbringing. Joe went on to Stanford in 2000. And while there, he interned for this little company that had this crazy vision of creating what they called the new world currency, whatever that means. Some foreign idea of person-to-person -person payments on the web that doesn't sound so foreign now, but sounds like PayPal. I think there were a lot of iconoclasts at the company. I think that the sort of people that Peter and Elon... Uh, Peter as in Peter Thiel? Later the first investor in Facebook. And Elon as in the only Elon I know. I mean, I don't actually know Elon Musk were friends with people who had strong opinions that were different than the mainstream. And these are people who were very ambitious, hard workers who wanted to build things. I think the culture brought together a lot of people who in another sense might have each founded their own companies and instead they were all working together. Their nerdy, workaholic, anti-jock pro reading, sleep behind your desk culture, and whom it attracted became so infamous that the outside world began calling it by its own name the PayPal Mafia. <laughs> Wouldn't you want to work somewhere that feels like a mafia? And for them, the mafia continued long past they all left PayPal, building more companies together and even when not, investing in each other's dreams of businesses that could make the world better. And, and obviously it taught people a lot being there because so many of my friends were there left and they started companies like LinkedIn and Yelp and YouTube. And of course, Elon started Tesla and SpaceX. And they're really like 15 or $16 billion companies started by the people there. And I think it was because it was just such a creative place where they all learned so quickly that they could take those lessons and bring them to their next companies. Some pretty decent motivation for this kid, Joe Lonsdale, to keep up with them. I was just a kid there. I was one of the youngest guys. A kid who would go on to build three different companies, Adapar, OpenGov, and Palantir, the last of which is valued at $21 billion. And with this success, Joe now freely uses his own capital and that of other investors at his firm 8VC to help budding entrepreneurs who are where he used to be, someone with a dream and in need of some capital. If you're gonna be investing in technology, if you wanna have big wins, it has to be something that's newly possible. So you can't invest in Google now, it's probably much too late, there's already a really good Google. If you wanna invest in Uber or Lyft, you know, ride-sharing companies, well, they've been possible for 10 years. If you tried to invest in Uber in 2000, that doesn't make any sense, there's no mobile phone ecosystem. Once Steve Jobs and these guys create the mobile ecosystem, Uber becomes possible some point in the next few years, that's when you have to invest in ride sharing, right? So the question is, as an investor, 
is what's possible now that wasn't possible five years ago or 10 years ago. And what's possible now in healthcare is almost unbelievable. By simply looking at a sample of your saliva, scientists can sequence your unique DNA, which means that they can see the order of your genes and see if there's any variations from what's normal and could be a red flag for a disease. And one day, Joe's friend Elod Gill brought him even better news. He said, Joe, I think with the, with the latest declines in sequencing costs, we're going to be able to measure people's risks for different types of cancer, for different types of cardiovascular things. And it's only going to cost a couple hundred dollars, maybe less. And right now in the market, it costs $6,000 to get your risk measured. So no one actually knows their risk. But if it's only a couple hundred dollars, it'd be worth it for everyone to do it because you'd actually be able to save a lot of lives. It turns out, for example, two and a half percent of women have some really high percent chance of getting cancer. And there's ways that if you know that, that it's actionable. You can do things to protect yourself. You can do things to, to, to make it so you don't die as young. And I was looking at the numbers with him and I said, wow, this is really amazing. And he's, he's such a talented guy. I knew he'd be able to build a top team. So I led the first major round of financing along with another big fund, Coastal at the time. And he gives me a few free tests as they're coming out. It's like, we're just starting to do these tests. You should try it out. It checks 37 genes and let you know if you have you know, risks or risks or not. And I, and I talked to Taylor about it. Joe's wife. I had these tests at home and she's like, oh, I'll take it and see what it is just to support it. And she took the test and unfortunately it came back that she has an 80% chance risk of getting cancer by the time she's in her 60s, which is obviously terrifying. Uh, but there's also the counselors they have and they talk to her and there's you know all sorts of family planning we're dealing. It's one reason we're having kids sooner, of course, because you can get the kids sooner and you can take certain actions to protect yourself once you've had kids. And so he said, wow, this is really important. You know, you have this gene, you better have your family check, check into it too. And so we had a, several people in our family took the test, you know, $200 each is not, not a big cost. And unfortunately, her mother came up having the same gene, which makes sense. She got it from her mother's side. And we had no idea that actually, we would had some cancer on her mom's side. We had no idea there was this really high risk on that side of the family. And so the, her mom went and saw her doctor. You know, they asked, she asked the doctor, what do I do? You know, is there anything we should know? And the doctor said, oh, wow, that's, that's weird. I've never heard of this before that someone just go and take the test, but that does seem like a risk. We should probably take your ovaries out just in case, but you know, you're totally fine. You're healthy. I wouldn't worry about it. But yeah, come in next month, we'll have the procedure. It's a good thing to do. And so she comes in the next month to have the procedure and they cut in and take the ovaries out and they discover like stage 3B or 3C cancer. So it's, it's not quite stage four, but it's pretty late stage. Cancer is terrifying. We only found it because she was having this you know, preventative procedure. And it turns out, fortunately, it was early enough that it looks like she's okay right now. We've, you know, she had to cut a bunch of it out and had to do a bunch of chemo and and stuff, but she's, she's doing really well. She's here taking care of our daughter a lot and interacting with our family. And she definitely wouldn't be here with us today if we hadn't done this $200 test. And if Joe hadn't invested in this life-saving company that he couldn't have known would save the life of someone in his family, Joe's mom is gone, but she was in the front of his mind when he made this investment. You realize that she's still with you in a lot of ways and that everything that she taught and inculcated and made you into who you are is still there even though she's gone. So I guess in some ways you kind of still feel her a lot. And great job as always, Alex. And the company, by the way, the testing company is Color Genomics. And Joe Lonsdale's story is a story of capital at work, human capital at work, human stories at work to make life better, to add value to people's lives. And in the end, in Joe's case, 
with his mom in mind to save lives, his own families, and, well, in the end, societies too, everyone's, not just in America, but across the world. And that's what Americans do. That's what American capital does. In the end, it unleashes innovation, improves lives, adds value, and changes the world. Joe Lonsdale's story, in a way, his mom's story, here on Our American Stories. And as always, our Better Health at Lower Cost series is brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. And again, that was Color Genomics. Go to color.com to learn more. Again, Joe Lonsdale's story, his mom's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and up next, the tale of a disaster in American history, one of epic proportions, and Jesse Edwards brings us the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread, makes you live so long you wish you were dead. You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed, with blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread. Molasses isn't just used for grandma's cookies or for grandpa's rum. It's also used for weapons, high explosives, and munitions when it's refined to industrial grade alcohol. And the United States Industrial Company during World War I saw that this was a profitable market. Their subsidiary, the Purity Distilling Company, wanted to get in on the action. In the north end of Boston, Arthur Gell treasurer of the Purity Distilling Company realizes that he has to build a tank. You see, he's purchased a boatload of molasses that's heading north from the Caribbean, and he's got no place to put it. He commissions the Hammond Iron Works Company, and he doesn't pull a building permit. He only pulls a permit for the foundation. Therefore, he's not scrutinized by any inspectors. So the Hammond Ironworks puts together 18 huge steel plates with rivets, and they build this magnificent tank. It's 58 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, a 240-foot circumference, and they're going to fill it with molasses. But there's only one problem. You see, the ship is inbound, and if they don't have that tank built, the ship will dump the molasses that they paid for into the Boston Harbor. Now, December of 1915 was a tough year weather-wise in Boston. With 20 inches of snow and some casualties on the construction site, the deadline was growing closer and closer. Finally, as the ship is pulling into the harbor, the tank is complete. Arthur cuts some corners. Instead of filling the tank to the top with water to test the structural integrity, he decides to fill it only six inches high. Arthur declares it sturdy, sound, and ready to use. Bring us the molasses. So they filled the tank up, and everything seemed fine, until about a year later. Isaac Gonzalez, a technician, noticed that the molasses seemed to be congealing around the riveted joints and seeping from the seams, rolling down the side of the tank. 
He noticed children going to the base of the tank to put molasses on their fingers and putting it in their mouths. They were getting it all over their clothes. Well, he brought this to Arthur Jell's attention. Arthur said, Well, never mind. We'll just repaint the tank gray. And that's exactly what they did. They painted the tank gray to cover up the molasses stains. Another technician soon noticed that when he leaned against the tank, he noticed this low rumbling noise that sounded like the growl of an angry animal. Another leaning against the tank swears that he could hear a heartbeat and that the tank was flexing in and out. Something was wrong. This wasn't molasses fermenting. There was bubbling inside, but this was an ominous sign that something was wrong with the integrity of the tank. 1919. The Molero is offloading nearly 2 million gallons of molasses into the tank at 529 Commercial Street. On January 12th, the temperatures are freezing, near zero. The following day on the 13th, they swing 35 degrees into the low 40s. By January 15th, it's a beautiful day in Boston. The sun is out and it's nearing lunchtime. All around 529 Commercial Street is bustling. It's Boston's North End. Mrs. Clority is out hanging her wash on the line. Her cat, Peter, sits on the doorstep. Mrs. O'Brien is planting flowers. Little Maria D'Estacio is near the train tracks, collecting free firewood. And then, suddenly, a low rumble shook the ground. It got louder and louder. In the freight yard, people looked at each other, mouths agape. And suddenly, the ripping, tearing, and machine gun sound of steel bolts being stripped. Something is happening to the tank. There's a booming roar. And a 40-foot wave of molasses is unleashed. Men, women, and children in the streets had no chance to react. It crushes freight cars like toys, topples buildings. Anyone caught in the path of this wave was devoured. Then the noise and the rumbling stopped. There was a thick pool of molasses spread over where 529 Commercial Street used to be. By sundown, 15 bodies are recovered. Six more the following morning. 150 people would be injured. Later, there are lawsuits. 3,000 witnesses come forward. And the lawyers tried to deflect the blame from the United States Industrial Alcohol Company and Purity Distilling. It wasn't the infrastructure of the tank, it was anarchists. They planted a bomb. And that was enough to get them off the hook for the Great Molasses Disaster. Legend has it that on hot summer days in Boston, you can still smell that bittersweet molasses scent that harkens back to the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. Blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed With blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread My grandpa's older than the old gray mare 
He sits a rockin' in his rockin' chair. But now he's got a smile that he can't lose. And Grandma's sittin' knitting baby's shoes. From eatin' wax, tap molasses, and the Ouija bread. Makes you live so long you wish you were dead. You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed. I gave up cherry pie and T-bone steak, chicken fricassee and ice cream cake. I don't need vitamins or pills at all. I even mix it with my hat of call. I'm eating blackstrap molasses and the wheat bread. Makes you live so long you wish you were dead. You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed. My nerves were jumpy and I'd walk the floor. I never got to sleep till after four. But since I'm eating right, I feel okay. I'm sleeping every night and hey. in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand played a tambourine so well Grandma's hand This is Our American Stories and today we want to bring your attention to an amazing documentary that is currently available on Netflix and Hulu a documentary that will make you laugh think and cry and this segment you're about to hear is a preview of what you'll see in this mind-opening film. And we love to bring you things from the culture and pass them along to you. And you may have a life we don't. We love checking out all this stuff and sharing it with you. Alive Inside is a joyous cinematic exploration of music's capacity to reawaken our souls and uncover the deepest parts of our humanity. It chronicles the astonishing experiences of individuals suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's around the country who have been revitalized through the simple experience of listening to music. So what's the big deal? Why would anyone go out of their way to give someone with Alzheimer's an iPod? Take a listen to this 90-year-old woman who tragically can't remember much about her life on this earth when she's asked about her childhood. How old are you? How old am I? Yeah. I'm 90 years old. What was life like when you were a little girl? Oh, God, I forgot so much. I forgot. I forgot so much. I'm very sorry. Oh, it's okay. What have you forgotten? I've forgotten what I used to do after I became a young lady. I've forgotten so much. I can't remember. I've been here, I've been here, I've been here 90 years. And if I could remember... I would tell you, but I don't, I can't remember. Dan Cohen is founder and director of Music and Memory, which promotes the use of digital music players with individualized playlists to improve the quality of life for elders. Listen to what happens when he plays this same woman, some Louis Armstrong. I want to try an experiment. What? I want you to try and let the music take you back into your memories, to travel back into time. And then we'll stop, and you can tell me where it took you. Um, okay. um, you ready? Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to be in that number. I win the same. Wow. 
He's saying when the saints go by, marching by, and it takes me back to my school days. I would like to hit the number. Mama told us not to go listen to him. We would sneak off at night, bring back pictures from the dance. And I worked in King County nine years. I was working in Fort Jackson, and my son, on February the 4th, was 69. <laughs> I didn't know I could talk so much. What you just heard was an instant illumination of this woman's soul through the power of music. What a great God moment. But you need to watch this documentary called Alive Inside to get the full effect. Seeing the faces, the body language of elderly people who instantly light up upon hearing the music of their youth is something we all need to witness for ourselves. Next, we're introduced to another old-timer named Henry. Henry is borderline catatonic and doesn't recognize his daughter. Henry, speak to me. I want to hear your voice. Can you talk to me? So let me hear you. Tell me your full name. Henry has dementia, and he needs total assistance with all his activities of daily living. Hi, Papa. Huh? How you doing? Huh? Who am I? I'm your daughter. Daughter? Mm-hmm. Which one? Listen to Henry after a nurse puts headphones on his ears. He asks if he can sing along. Then a nurse describes his reaction. I I would sing with this. You can if you like. first met him, he was very isolated, and he used to always sit on the unit with his head like this. He didn't really talk to much people, and then when I introduced the music to him, this is his reaction every since. <laughs> Everyone in that room with Henry was blown away by his reaction. Dan Cohen the man behind this effort to give music back to the elderly who suffer from dementia, talked to Henry right after he listened to that song. Here is their remarkable conversation. Do you like music? Yeah, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sound. Did you like music when you were young? Yes, yes, I went to big dances and things. What was your favorite music when you were young? Well, well I guess... Uh, Isn't that incredible? This man couldn't recognize his own daughter, but after just a few minutes of listening to an iPod, could remember his favorite musician, Cab Calloway, as he burst out into a scat. Henry was then asked what his favorite song was and what the favorite part of his life was. Listen to what happens next. What's your favorite song? Oh, I'll be on the Christmas. You can count plans on me with plenty of snow. Mr. Joe. 
present Reverend New Tree. Ow! Christmas Eve will carry me where that love light beam. Henry, Ma, yeah. what was the favorite part of your life? What was your favorite part of your life? Broke my life. It was part of my life was riding a bicycle. Grocery boy. What'd you like about riding a bicycle? That's why I made my money. You need no money. Isn't that true about all the favorite parts of our life? So what's going on here? This film goes on to explain that music is recorded in the part of our brain that is the last place dementia affects. So why isn't this being implemented in nursing homes across this country and everywhere? Dan Cohen explains the problem. I can sit down and write out a script for $1,000 a month antidepressant. No problem. Nobody asks any questions. If I want to provide a person with a $40 personal music system, that will take a lot of work. Because personal music doesn't count as a medical intervention. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of a side thing over here. The real business, trust me, is in the pill bottle. Open for me? Our healthcare system imagines the human being to be a very complicated machine. And we figured out how to turn the dials. Blood pressure, oh, turn that down, you know? Blood sugar, oh, turn that down. We have medicines that can adjust the dials. We haven't done anything medically speaking, to touch the heart and soul of a patient. One more of the many elderly in this film suffering from dementia is a woman named Mary Lou. Here, she struggles to identify kitchen utensils before she is given an iPod. Listen to what she says immediately after listening to the Beach Boys. What do you call that? Um, It's a... a Knife... No, fork or spoon. Would you like to hear some music? Would you like to listen to some music? Sure, why not? Here you go. I don't know how to do this. Straight over your ears and your head. Perfect. See a little button in the middle? That's that. Yeah, right in the middle. Click it once. Stop the music. Uh, oh, thank you so much. Okay. So there's a, a tears of joy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Oh, yeah. That's the best thing I've ever, ever had, this thing. It can't get away from me if I'm in this place. I thought you were going to grow wings. I was trying. I, I, you... <laughs> <laughs> This incredible documentary concludes with a beautiful message on the importance and power of music in all of our lives. And we know, we know that to be the case. What a remarkable thing this man did. We know music has the power to change lives. We know it triggers memory. But this guy went out and did it. And let me tell you, if you want to help or you want to know more or learn more, go to musicandmemory.org. That's musicandmemory.org. There you can learn more about Dan Cohn's remarkable mission to bring music to those of us who need it more than ever. What a selfless, creative, and generous way to honor 
those in their final days. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the Soggy Bottom Boys and their rendition of Man of Constant Sorrow from the O oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. And it's a great soundtrack, a great movie, a funny movie, one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. And now it's time for our Story of the Song segment. We love this segment. We've done a whole bunch. You can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to them all. Jesus Take the Wheel, Georgia on My Mind, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, Riders on the Storm with Ray Manzarek. It's a tutorial, and it's just superb. And last but not least, I think everyone's favorite here, if you haven't heard it, the story of the making of Gimme Shelter, and particularly the haunting background vocals by Mary Clayton. It's terrific, and you'll love it. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org, story of a song. In the opening scene of this great movie that we were just talking about, we see the Soggy Bottom Boys escaping a prison chain gang across a cornfield in the sweltering southern heat. As the credits roll, an old song begins to play with lyrics full of silliness and fantasy. Here's Jesse with the story of a song in Big Rock, Candy Mountain. Big Rock, Candy Mountain, first recorded by Harry McClintock in 1928, is a folk song about a hobo's idea of paradise. And he wrote it for an album titled Hallelujah, I'm a Bum. Also known as Haywire Mac, McClintock was a singer-songwriter and poet born in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1882. His drifting began when he ran away from home as a boy to join the circus. He railroaded in Africa, worked as a seaman, saw action in the Philippines as a civilian mule train packer, supplying American troops with food and ammunition, and in 1899 found himself in China an aide to a newsman covering the Boxer Rebellion. Back in the States, he hired out to the Pittsburgh-Fort Wayne and Chicago Railway in the Pittsburgh area, and from there, he took the Boomer Trail as a railroader and minstrel. Mac lived an adventurous life and never lost his sense of humor. His song, Big Rock Candy Mountain in 1928, much later featured in the 2000 movie Old Brother or Art Thou, reached number one on Billboard's Hillbilly Hits chart in 1939. Who knew there was such a thing? Having worked as a cowboy himself, McClintock was one of the few country singers who had an authentic background from which to draw. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning, I'm headed for a land that's far away, beside the crystal fountains, so come with me, we'll go and see. It's a place where hens lay soft-boiled eggs and there are cigarette trees around every corner. Before recording the song, McClintock cleaned it up considerably from the version that he sang as a street busker in the 1890s. Originally, the song described a child being recruited into the hobo life. I've hiked and hiked until my feet are sore and I'll be damned if I hike anymore to be buggered sore like a hobo's whore in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. Those lyrics were not in the released version, and the song wasn't even popularized until 1939 when it peaked at number one on the Billboard magazine's country music charts. 
But it achieved much more widespread popularity in 1949 when a much more family-friendly version of the song intended for children was recorded by Burl Ives. Oh, the buzzing of the bees and the cigarette trees, the soda water fountain, where the lemonade springs and the bluebird sings in that big rock candy mountain. Now, even though they got rid of the booze references, at least they still had cigarette trees. Now fast forward to modern times, and this is what the song has become today. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the goodies grow on bushes, and you sleep at every Now there's nothing wrong with making things a little family friendly, but this is just torture. But there were some other noteworthy versions of this old time hit. Even Johnny Cash was fond of the big rock candy mountain. One sunny day in the month of May, a burly bum came hiking down the shady lane by the sugar cane, a looking for his liking. As he strolled along, he sang a song of the land of milk and honey, where a bum can stay for many a day, and he don't need any money. Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees, the soda water fountain, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings on the big rock candy mountain. On the big rock candy mountain, all the cops have wooden legs. The bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit, their barns are full of hay. Now I want to go where there ain't no snow, and the sleet don't fall, and the wind don't blow, and a bum can sleep all day. Now, it's been recorded by many artists throughout the world, but one particularly grandiose version, recorded in 1960 by Dorsey Burnett, to date was the biggest success for the song in the post-1954 rock era, having reached number 102 on Billboard's charts. Up in the big rock candy mountain, the cops have wooden legs, the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay softballed eggs. The farmer's loft is a full of hay. His wife wears a satin dress. Oh, well, I'm gonna go where the wind don't blow. It don't rain, it don't snow in the big rock candy mountain. But aside from the original Harry McClintock version of Big Rock Candy Mountain. <laughs> My personal favorite has got to be this unique performance by Tex Morton in 1939. Now in the big rock candy mountains is a land that's fair and bright Where the handles grow on bushes and sleep out every night Where the boxcars all are empty and sun shines every day There's birds and bees and cigarette trees and lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy cluster of brightly colored hills just north of Marysville, Utah, near the Fish Lake National Forest, is named the Big Rock Candy Mountain. In 1928, after the song had been released, some Utah residents jokingly placed the sign at the base of the hills, labeling it such, along with the sign next to a nearby spring, proclaiming it Lemonade Springs. The Big Rock Candy Mountain Resort currently sits at the base of the hills and is a major hub on the Paiute ATV Trail. Doggone, I 
bet that's a good record, Ms. Dobberley. And that is the story of Big Rock Candy Mountain. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountains. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright. Where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. Where the boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, all the cops have wooden legs. And the bulldogs all have rubber teeth and the hens lay soft boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. And the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a-goin' to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. I'll see you all this comin' fall in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and sciences, and straight to history, and your stories too. In fact, some of our very best work has come from you. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll produce them, and we'll play them. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, our next segment is about, well, our favorite subject here on the show. We talk the most in the studio about food, but on the show, most of our content, the biggest category is music. And by the way, about everything, from Sinatra to Miles Davis to Merle Haggard, Whitney Houston, Nirvana, everybody. There's no music we prefer over another, including Vladimir Horowitz's story, the great Russian pianist. It's all good, and music is music. And we're about to take a short yet fascinating trip down a road that leads to modern-day hip-hop. In the beginning, the hip-hop scene was a raw, raw experience. It was an underground music expression that was light years away from the commercial enterprise that it became. But one music producer took the low-budget, lo-fi rawness of hip-hop and put his own polished spin on it, making it accessible to the world. And the world has never been the same since. To tell this story... We must first take two steps back to the early 1970s. Here's Greg Hengler. 
In his 1998 book, For the Record, Sly and the Family Stone, Joel Selvin writes, There are two types of black music, black music before Sly Stone and black music after Sly Stone. Though their influence on hip-hop wouldn't be fully realized until the birth of the genre, Sly and the Family Stone had a major impact on hip-hop artists and their musical tastes, as well as the music that they would end up creating. Here's music historian Jason King. Just as the rise of female singer-songwriters in the 1970s meant that people like Joni Mitchell were able to produce their own vision of who they were in the recording studio, you also have the rise of African-American artists who start to use the recording studio in a way that's incredibly creative and very different than the past. People like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and Curtis Mayfield, and particularly, I think, Sly from Sly and the Family Stone. These artists became the producers themselves. Here's record producer Arthur Baker. He was his own boss. You couldn't think of anyone telling Sly what to do in the studio. Here's Q-Tip from the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. I can talk about Sly and the Family Stone for a very long time. Okay, play it. Okay. Sly Stone brought in a song craftsmanship to funk that wasn't there. He put his own spin on it, and out came something really unique and bold and just fresh. Here's drummer Questlove, who performs with The Roots for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Because of the ongoing conflicts between Sly and his family Stone, he wound up doing his fifth record, There's a Ride Going On, by himself. Here's music historian Oliver Wang. Sly Stone was such a huge musical experiment. He would try playing with things that most other musicians hadn't thought about. He did it like what now we'd call a home studio. That's Sly playing bass, it's Sly playing guitar, Sly playing keyboards. Of course, he's programming, drum programming on there, which is like early kind of hip-hop. Some uptight producer would go, no, I don't want that. That, sound, that doesn't sound like real drums. That was the point. It didn't, but it was something funkier. What he did in 1971 will be the gold standard for how musicians will create their music 10 years later. Here's Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels. The significance of the black musician, songwriter, um, singer, producer, whatever, to me, it all boils down to communicating the lives we live. Here's music historian Todd Boyd. It's a generation of people who don't have access to musical instruments, who don't have musical training. They're using music to create new music. We took what was available and created hip hop. Why you serve? Take the train to the plane. Drop a scoop. 
With hip-hop, the role of the producer changes completely. You have producers sampling and using drum machines. Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley. The best producers, they have this ability to create a signature tapestry that makes all of these bits and pieces actually sound like an original composition. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. early 1990s, Dr. Dre basically put West Coast hip-hop on the map. He was notorious for having this sound that was unlike anything else. Here's hip-hop producer Hank Shockley. Gangsta rap. That music took on a life of its own. And it gave the West Coast and and L.A. scene its own voice. Here's record producer Tricky Stewart. I remember the shift when N.W.A. and Dre came into the scene. Sonically, it was polished, but at the same time, it was like this super hard West Coast sound. I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary, but my technique is very necessary. Blame it on Ice Cube, because he said it get funky when you got a subject and a predicate. And you felt Dre's presence as one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all time, if not the greatest. Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine. When we started Interscope, I didn't know anything about running a business, and I knew even less about hip-hop. So his fellow John McClain was an A&R guy, brought this tape and said, we have to sign these guys. I said, who is it? He goes, it's Dr. Dre. It's his solo record. It used to be an NWA. I said, okay. I said, I don't really know a lot about it, but, you know, play it for me. One, two, three, and to the folks. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the dope. And I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't understand the music, but I understood the sound. So Dre comes in. I said, Dre, who recorded this record? He said, I did. I said, no, no, not who produced it. Who engineered it? He said, I did. I said, wow, this guy's on to something. Here's Dr. Dre. Everybody has to have their own sound. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes it different, you know? And I'm a perfectionist. Because no matter how hard you work in the studio, no matter what you do, you don't know if people are going to dig it. It's, it's very easy to make a hip-hop record. It's not easy to make a good hip-hop record. When Dre came in with The Chronic, he was using live musicians and recording it very sparse. He's finding samples that we all overlook, pulling from funk and G-funk. You know, you listen to the sample on G thing. Here's RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. He's hearing things that the average ear will never encounter in a song. And then when he hears it, he'll pull it out. He will pull it out. Here again is Questlove. I'll admit something to you. I was one of the initial naysayers of Dr. Dre's The Chronic was like everything I didn't want hip-hop to be. It was clean, louder, bigger. I wanted my hip-hop dirty. This DIY approach, this very low-budget, lo-fi approach to making music. That's what I felt hip-hop should and always be. 
It took me 10 years to really understand where Dr. Dre was going. And now that I make records, now I understand why this album is so important. What he did for hip-hop and for sampling is that he proved that you can make a record of the highest quality as a hip-hop producer. Besides crafting and popularizing G-Funk, a.k.a. Gangsta Rap, Dr. Dre is the founder and CEO of Aftermath Entertainment, and in 2008, he released his first brand of headphones, Beats by Dr. Dre. It was sold to tech giant Apple in 2014 for a reported $3.2 billion, the most expensive Apple takeover purchase ever. Dre's net worth spiked to an estimated $740 million. Dr. Dre got married to his wife, Nicole, in 1996. They have two children together, a son named Truth, and a daughter named Truly. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And boy, we learn things here on this show. What a story about an American life, an American musician and producer. Dr. Dre's story here on Our American Stories. 